Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. If you say, I have an animal-based, low-carb diet, and I want to keep this for the rest of my life. Well, I always say I never met a centenarian that has an animal-based, low-carb diet. If you look at the meta-analysis recently published by Lancet, but also other studies, people that have a low-carb diet, they have the shorter lifespan, unless it is plant-based. In fact, in the Lancet study, having 80% carbohydrate diet made you live longer than having a low-carb diet. So it's better to go almost all-carb than low-carb. What about a mouse? What if I give a mouse a low-carb diet? Several studies suggest the mouse will live shorter unless it is a very special low-carb diet. People focus on the next week, six months, one year. You know, I want to do something right now that, yes, achieves what I'm trying to achieve, but also it doesn't take away from allowing me to get to 110 health. That's longevity scientist, Dr. Volta Longo. And this is episode 106 of the Plant Proof Podcast. I hope you're doing well today. Welcome back to another episode of the Plant Proof Podcast. It's actually my birthday today, June 20th. So I thought I would throw up a second episode for the week to celebrate. I also just emailed out the updated Plant Proof Food Pyramid to all the email subscribers. So I hope you enjoy that too. And if you didn't get that, please make sure you sign up to the newsletter at plantproof.com. For anyone who may be new to the show, who may have just stumbled across the podcast for the first time, my name's Simon Hill. Thank you. Welcome. And uh, it's it's an honor to be your host. By way of background, I have a bachelor's degree in physiotherapy, a master's in nutrition, and really a a passion, a deep passion for separating fact from fiction when it comes to how our food choices affect not only our health, but also the planet. I started this show to create a safe space, a non-judgmental space to talk about diet. With, with the aim being to separate any ideology from science and, and then with that information, you can make decisions in your own life that suit the lifestyle you want to lead. A sort of here's the information approach rather than here's what you must do. I'm going to keep today's introduction pretty short. Today's episode is with well-known professor, biologist, and author of The Longevity Diet, Dr. Walter Longo. I love this guy. I've followed his work from afar for many years. And when I was in Los Angeles recently, we were connected and, and managed to find time to sit down and record this episode that I'm very grateful to be able to share with you today. We talk about calorie restriction, fasting, centenarians, how to eat to live a long, healthy life, and much more. If you liked the episode that I did recently with Harvard professor, Dr. David Sinclair, then I really think you're going to love this one too. Before we jump into this episode today, there is one thing that I would like to share with you, uh, a new position paper uh, was published today by the American College of Lifestyle Medicine on reversing diabetes and achieving complete remission. And 
they recommend, they come to the conclusion after reviewing all of the literature that a whole food plant-based diet is the most optimal diet for anyone with type 2 diabetes to reverse the disease and achieve remission. So just quickly, here's a direct quote from the paper, which I'll link in the show notes for anyone who, who would like to delve a little, a little deeper and read in a bit more detail. The position of the ACLM, which is the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, informed by current best research evidence, is that, one, sufficiently intensive lifestyle modifications are capable of producing significant clinical improvements in patients with type 2 diabetes. And two, that the optimal treatment to bring about remission includes a whole food, plant-based dietary pattern coupled with moderate exercise. A whole food, plant-based diet emphasizes fruits and vegetables, legumes and whole grains, and includes nuts and seeds, while eliminating or minimizing animal foods such as red and white meat, poultry, fish, eggs, and dairy, as well as refined foods that include added sugars and oils. They then go on to say, the present swing towards a high-protein, low-carbohydrate dietary pattern for improving hyperglycemia, which means high blood sugar, is problematic. And ketogenic diets only appear to eliminate type 2 diabetes by consistently failing to challenge insulin receptivity rather than by improving or restoring it. Anyway, in summary, this just speaks to the information that many of the previous guests have spoken about on this show. If you want to reverse type 2 diabetes, you really need to treat the underlying cause and simply going to a low carb diet while better than some options out there. And, and while it is good for controlling blood glucose levels, it doesn't do that. It doesn't treat the underlying disease, the underlying cause. This is something that I explain in a lot more detail in my book, which for anyone who isn't aware is out February, 2021 and is being published by Penguin Books. As I said, anyone who wants to read that position statement in a little bit more detail, please check the show notes. Here we go, friends. I'll see you on the other side. Dr. Longo, welcome. It's a pleasure to sit down with you. Well, thanks for having me. And it's a beautiful, absolutely beautiful morning here in California. Yes, yes. Good place to be. <laughs> and I saw you drive, you drive a car that I really, really like, <laughs> the Tesla. Yeah, yeah. Tell yeah. me about it. <laughs> well, you know, it's a, it's a good car. I um I got it. One of the the main reasons for getting it is that I was getting distracted with uh, emails and and text, uh, and I just thought, you know, sooner or later, I'm just gonna do damage with this, you know. And I just thought that there was a car that, whenever I get distracted, uh, I can put the autopilot on. <laughs> and uh, you know, still look, but uh, you know, have sort of a hybrid situation, and and it works pretty well. You know? So, so yeah, that, that was the main reason for. for so me, tell me, so me so the, so the car will essentially drive yeah, itself. Drive itself, yeah, yeah, it drives <laughs> itself. And I mean, I still pay. I'm still paying attention. I have my hands on the wheel, but but it'll break. It'll bre- it'll drive. Yeah, it'll, it'll drive. just drive. It'll, it'll turn the it'll turn. drive to work. Yeah. Drive oh, you incredible. to work, yeah. So productivity must have gone up. No, no, no. But but I do. <laughs> I just noticed it's just it's not just me. Lots of people get distracted. You have something mm-hmm. important coming in. It's a text, and and uh, yeah, you just 
Yeah. Not not good. So so that was my uh, strategy. Yeah. Now I'm very excited to sit down with you today to to talk about how the food we eat, what we eat, how much we eat, the the timing of of when we eat, how these sorts of things affect our health and and also our longevity, how how long we live. And I think before we sort of delve into the research and what you've unearthed with your team and colleagues and and potentially some other researchers that uh, you've worked with, I think a nice place to start would be to learn a little bit more about Dr. Longo and how he initially became inspired and passionate about this area. I know that you, you grew up in Italy, right? Yes, I grew up in, in two very interesting uh, uh, regions for both uh, food and longevity. And one of them is uh, Genova, Liguria, you know, where people know Cinque Terre, for example. It's a beautiful Porto place. Fino, yeah. yeah. But it's also one of the few places in the world that uh, traditionally uh, and still to this day had a pescatarian diet. So where people uh, eat lots of vegetables that they could grow around their houses, but also fish because there's not that much land. And so they were forced to to eat the fish they uh, fished uh, uh, in the in the area. So that's one. And the other one is Calabria, where my uh, parents are from, and it's in the south. And, and uh, I happen to be from a little town that has record longevity and also a very healthy uh, diet. So uh, what, what town's that? It's called Molocchio. Yeah, okay. actually it was featured by National Geographic as being one of the uh, towns with the highest uh, uh, number of centenarians. So that's right down, like down towards Sicily. Very near Sicily, right? Okay. Across the, the strait. Yep. Very interesting. Yeah. So growing up, you were you were surrounded by lots of people that were living, I guess, into into their old, the older years, into the 80s and 90s. Was that something that was quite normal for you to see? Yes, it was uh, quite normal, but it was also uh, the time when I started seeing, for example, my own grandfather dying fairly early and uh, uh, and other people living very long in the same town. And so I think it was also an opportunity to realize how, how big of a difference uh, something mm. uh, was making. You know, why is somebody dying in their 70s? And some of, some of my grandfather's uh, uh, friends uh, and relatives were, you know, dying past age 100. So yeah, there, there was the beginning of observing how much uh, people can live differently, but I didn't know yeah. why at the time. Okay. And then, so you ended up going to university and studying. Yeah. So I, I ended up uh, coming to Chicago actually when I was 16 uh, to study uh, music. You know, so I started studying a bebop with this great uh, teacher in Chicago, Stuart Pierce. But also that was a good, uh, a great opportunity to see the difference food can make. Again, I didn't know anything about food at the time, but certainly my relatives in Chicago, they had the same genetic background as those in Italy. They were eating a very bad diet and I started seeing diabetes, cardiovascular disease, uh, et cetera. And so I didn't really remember that many people being uh, sick back in Italy, and here lots of my family members had problems, and some of them very very severe problems, and and uh, so it, I started realizing yes maybe this the way they eat is not uh, uh, ideal, and maybe it is responsible for 
for these problems that I see. Okay. So you were doing music at that stage. What, what did the journey look like from there into the, the field of science for you? Well, the journey then, I, I started uh, a jazz performance uh, studies in Texas, uh, University of North Texas, actually at the time, and still now, I think it's one of the best uh, jazz programs in the, in the United States. And the journey was, uh, I mean, I always wanted to study aging, I think. But uh, on the second year of, uh, of the de- music degree, they asked me to direct a marching band. And uh, I said, there is no way I'm doing that. And, uh, and that was it. So they say, well, you know, then you have to look for another major because this is a requirement uh, for uh, what we do. And, you know, I was a rock player and uh, I, I, was, I was happy studying jazz, but not directing marching bands. And, uh, and I, immediately I thought, I want to study aging. And, uh, and then as a very naive uh, 19-year-old, I thought, uh, you know, to study aging, you, study, you have to know chemistry and biology. And so I figured I'm going to start studying biochemistry. So I think that was a good, uh, good decision. So you finished university. Was it, I know that you, you then ended up working under uh, Roy Walford, who is known for um, biosphere which is maybe something that we can, we can talk about yeah. and, and, and what the, I guess, what the interesting findings were from, from that study. But how did you find yourself working under, under Roy? At the time, this is 1992, and uh, Roy Walford and Caleb Finch, at least to me and to many, many people in the field, uh, were the pillars, uh, these two giants of, of aging research. And uh, one of them was the USC, uh, Caleb Finch and the other one, Roy Walford, was at UCLA. So to me, it was LA was the perfect city. Now you had the two of the top uh, aging scientists. Plus, uh, it was a great place for for rock and roll. So perfect yeah, fit, yeah, perfect fit. <laughs> and actually, uh, Roy Walford, you may not know this, but uh, lived a few blocks away from here. Oh, really? And uh, yeah, there he was go. a very interesting character that. Um, uh, was um, uh, like me, very much focused on science, but also on lots of uh, rather than music, he was more interested in theater. Uh, so that's okay. uh, that was uh, part of his life. So, is there a connection between uh, music and create creativity and theater and and longevity, or is this just a a coincidence that you guys were interested in both there? I think it it is uh, probably not much of a coincidence. Uh, Caleb Finch is also a very accomplished uh, uh, fiddle player uh, who played in a, in a band for many years. Uh, so it's probably common for people that are looking for uh, different spaces, different creative spaces. And I think longevity at the time uh, and, and probably still now represents uh, maybe a frontier in science, you know, something very new. It's exciting. It's becoming less and less new because now everybody works on it. But uh, at least in, in the early 90s, uh, longevity was not something that you did. Mm. It was a crazy field. So was that harder then to get funding? Is it getting easier to get funding now that that longevity is becoming a bit more of a, a, a mainstream sort of understanding the funding was actually easier back then because uh, the NIH, National Institute of Health, uh, um, had more money relative to the number of people applying for it. It was just aging was viewed as a crazy field of, of, of sort of nut cases. You know, like Walford, for example, was very much uh, an outcast and somebody that uh, he was in the faculty 
Is that because people were looking at it as aging is just a normal part of life? It's not a disease. Is that is that was that the mentality? I think it was just too strange to people back then. You know, to the point that we will basically not. If somebody will ask us what are you working on, we will say something else. Oh, really? Aging. It was almost viewed as embarrassing. I think now you, you could say the equivalent would be if somebody asks you what are you doing and you said, I'm working on immortality. It was similar, right? So mm-hmm. now most people wouldn't be comfortable saying, oh, you're in a university, you're at UCLA, what are you doing? I'm working on immortality. Uh, my people are, uh, some people are, but uh, not too many people would, uh, would be uh, willing to say it. Right? So maybe 30 years from now, I don't know, maybe a normal thing to do, but uh, yeah. So That's like interesting. That. The science is potentially, I guess, in the laboratory, a little bit ahead of where the, the, the public, what they're ready to hear <laughs> to, to an extent. Yeah, very much ahead. So I think it, maybe 20 or 30 years, that step happens somewhere in the lab by a f- small group of people okay. decades before everybody else. Well, it sounds, uh, like you, to... sounds like you know something about immortality. <laughs> I'm going to try and get it out of you by the end of this. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I I uh, I, I had the, the period where, where that was uh, part of my agenda, but uh, it, I think as for Walford, you know, Walford, uh, uh, I heard, you know, and I, I don't know if it's true, but I heard that um, he was planning to uh, freeze himself, right? So I've read something about yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I also heard, and again, I don't know if it's true, that he took himself out of that uh, before dying. So very interesting, right? That, very, very... That, that would pose a very interesting scenario because the idea is freeze yourself and then wake up like, what, 500, 1,000 years later. Yeah, or 10,000 years. 10,000 years. And how, how much has the environment changed by then? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? So not just the environment, uh, you know, Will there be um, human beings any, anymore, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so I don't know what his thinking process was, but um, he decided uh, that that was probably not what he wanted to do. Yeah. So is that something that people are still looking into doing? That yes, very freezing? much. Yeah. Very much, yeah. yeah. I visited uh, some of these places uh, many years ago. That was probably around the 92, 93. Interesting, there was, a, I, there was some crazy, uh, real crazy people, more crazy than we were associated with that, uh, with that world. But, you know, I don't know, I don't want to, you know, offend anybody because I, I can see, as I was saying, I can see the possibility that maybe 30 years from now that would be standard and everybody, and that's going to be like the most exciting yeah. field that there is, right? I feel like, I mean, I'm, I, this, is, this is me speculating and speaking personally, like if I was going to do it, I wouldn't do it for 10,000 years. I'd want to do it for like 100 so that then I could come back out. The world hadn't changed too much and you could hang out with your great, great, great grandkids or something like that. But, well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I always, uh, I remember back in the days, I asked my mom, uh, would you want to live to 300? And my mom is a very religious, old style person. And I thought that she for sure say, no way. And she said, yes. Uh, and the reason was, um, you know, just what you say, right? Yeah. So, so it's amazing, right? That, that our, to a lot of people that mm. something reasonable, like living to 300, in her mind, it, wouldn't, it wasn't violating anybody's uh, big rules. And, and I'm not saying it is not, but certainly in her mind, it wasn't. And there was her answer, you know, that mm. is, you'll see my great-grandchildren grow up and, 
and that will have in in our view will have sort of be the perfect life. You know? Yeah, I wouldn't be opposed to that. I mean, I guess it does raise the question about an increasing population and and what that does with more people and and less resources. But that's a whole nother that's a whole nother question. <laughs> let's let's go into the nutrition side of things because I think some of the work that you've done with calorie restriction and fasting and how that affects various uh, biomarkers of, of longevity and, and, and the understanding that you have of various mechanisms involved in, in aging at a cellular level is very, very interesting. And I think sometimes we see, particularly we see fasting sort of as a word thrown around, and I'm not sure everyone has a full appreciation for fasting as an intervention and the power of it and you know, what the science sort of shows now and what it may show in the future. So perhaps a top level, why don't we differentiate between calorie restriction and, and fasting and, you know, time-restricted feeding? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, these are just words, right? I'm, I'm very concerned about the, the loose use of, of uh, words like calorie restriction or fasting. And I always say fasting uh, it's like a little bit like eating, right? So what does it mean that uh, to say somebody's eating? Nothing, right? And so to say somebody's fasting also means absolutely nothing. Um, so it depends what what we're talking about, what type of fasting, what if it's containing anything, how long is it going, how frequently, et cetera, et cetera. So um, first of all, uh, calorie restriction instead also doesn't mean anything. But most people will refer to, um, let's say, uh, a 25%, depending on what organism you're talking about. But if you're talking about humans, maybe 20 to 25% restriction in calories, in just calories. Which is like biosphere, right? Biosphere 2. Is that biosphere was about 20%, maybe 25%. Yeah. And uh, so biosphere 2, for for the most people that don't know what it is, it was where Walford, my, my PhD mentor, UCLA, he took sort of two years off uh, his faculty position at UCLA to go and be locked up in this uh, place in, in, in Arizona near Tucson, uh, where he uh, stayed for, for uh, two years sealed. And uh, in after a couple of months in Biosphere 2, they started the first human calorie restriction study. And so the 20, 25% is below normal level. So this is not saying the typical American eating 20% less. It will be somebody already at the right weight and level eating twenty percent less. So, had he um, did he design that so that there was food scarcity, or what, or did they just go in knowing that there was going to be calorie restriction, or how did that actually play out? Well, it is possible that Walford was clever enough because <laughs> he was absolutely obsessed, and he was at the time the leading figure in the world on nutrition for longevity. And there was no doubt. And he was the leading figure in the world for calorie restriction. So I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Roy orchestrated the whole thing mm. so that, you know, they wouldn't have enough food. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, within a couple of months, he said, well, why don't we uh, go on calorie restriction? Because uh, there is not going to be enough food. It is possible. And I don't know, maybe not, that Walford knew that uh, there was no way they were going to be able to grow yeah. enough food. And so... You know, purposely he got uh, the whatever food uh, uh, storage they had or stores they had it, it limited, so that um, he had an opportunity to do a human calorie restriction study, which is a tough trial to do, right? In in, in a normal environment, it's tough to get people, I guess, to stick to a twenty thirty percent deficit for a long time. Well, well, that kind of a controlled 
color restriction study in the 1991 would have been virtually impossible to do. I mean, it would have been very difficult to get uh, the, the ethical committee to approve it. Uh, and certainly you would never been able to hospitalize people and control exactly what they ate and, and when. So, yeah, so this was an ex- a real like, human experiment. Okay. And, uh, the, and that was, I mean, it will be hard to imagine how else you could do it like that, right? In a controlled manner. Now, of course, there, there have been many human color restriction studies since then, but certainly never were uh, the subjects were hospitalized and asked to eat uh, and given the food, right? So continuously. So he was able to basically control everything about the study, mm-hmm. which is uh, virtually impossible uh, in any other setting. And I mean, before we sort of jump on, I guess, to explaining uh, the difference between that and uh, fasting or fasting mimicking diet, what were the, the main takeaways from that experiment that Walford did? That experiment uh, with eight people, it's about as powerful as you can imagine in medicine. I mean, if you look at the results, and not very many people even knew about any of these results until decades later, because again, it was like viewed as a crazy study, eight people in this in this environment, uh, enclosed environment in Arizona, uh, but tremendous effects on cholesterol, tremendous effects on blood pressure, uh, fasting glucose, you know. So almost everything changed. And if you look at the blood markers overall, you would, most doctors would, would say, this person is never going to develop uh, most diseases. Now, it also reveals something very, very important, which, which to me, it was obvious when I was there when they came out of Biosphere 2, in in 2000 uh, in 1992 and they looked pretty bad so part of it of course was because they were locked in this uh, place but part of it was because of color restriction i think and so um they looked anorexic like so the 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 male had a bmi i think between 18 and 19 so if that's low yeah yeah it's very low so your your bmi is probably around what 25? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So then imagine uh, my BMI is about 22 and a half, 23, and I'm thin. So um, imagine how thin they were. So that, 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 I think, revealed a lot about the incredible potential of calorie restriction. It, it could revolutionize uh, medicine. And at the same time, the fact that there wasn't going to be it, meaning that this was not going to be the way people achieved this mm. incredible effects because it was too risky and it was too not feasible. So it, it wasn't going to be feasible. So do you think that was border, like borderline malnutrition almost? Uh, not necessarily malnutrition because Walford was very, very careful in making sure they had everything they needed. Okay. But it was just pushing people to the limit. Yeah. And uh, so their body fat reser- uh, reserves may have been less than seven or eight percent or, or you know, I don't know if it was published that part, but certainly he pushed everyone to the limit. And now we're, we, we're understanding from the studies in monkeys and many other studies in, in mice, for example, that if you take mice with lots of genetic backgrounds and you, you push them to the limit, uh, about a third of them will live longer. A third of them will have no effect and a third of them will live shorter. And so Science always likes to focus on, on the good news, right? So, the, yeah. so the, for, the, for 100 years, we focused on the good of calorie restriction and nobody wanted to focus mm. on 
Well, what about the, the times when things get worse? And what's the average across what's the What's the average if you take many yeah. genetic uh, backgrounds, meaning people or, or animals of, of different genetic makeup, and, um, and you know, what are, what are the side effects? Uh, so, yeah, so I think that that to me was a very important moment in, in 92 uh, in saying this is not the way, but this is certainly, there's something about this mm. that is remarkable, and especially when I saw the results. And also the fact that, that um, you know, uh, Walford uh, uh, was doing experiments on himself, as all of us, I think, yeah. and it worked. I mean, it, it, for a lot of things that, that he had problems with and for a lot of things I have problems with, I had problems with, it worked. So I think, um, um, yeah, there was a remarkable time in, 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 in starting to understand the power of food, mm. but also the danger of mm. Oh, there's, yeah. there's like a, uh, I'm not sure if it's a Californian or the, there's, there's a calorie restriction association or something, right? There's a group of people yes, that yes. are uh, that are sort of living in a, a prolonged state of calorie restriction. Yes, there is a thing, calorie restriction society. Society. There are many it, yeah. people that are doing this and they've been doing it for, for decades. Are they being um, tracked or monitored in any form of uh, you know, uh, study? Well, um, yes and no. Uh, not formally, but there many of them are part of the calorie restriction mm. studies done by uh, Washington University and the uh, Pennington uh, Center. Yeah, so there are, there's a study called Calorie C-A-L-E-R-I-E, -E, I think it's called. I mean, there is a, another one. Uh, yeah, so there are multiple studies that, of course, ask yeah. these societies for uh, volunteers because, um, you know, they're already calorific. Yeah, and you mentioned the monkeys there, the the, the studies on the rhesus uh, monkeys, quite, quite interesting. Perhaps... Talk me through what the the findings from those studies have been. Are they are they the same as what you just stated? Then, as some of the monkeys living longer and some living shorter, or is it, is it different to mice? Very similar. Okay. So very similar in the sense that if you look at insulin resistance and diabetes, is about 55 percent in the monkeys on a normal diet, and it went down to by five percent on the calorie diet uh, monkeys. Uh, if you look at cancer, cardiovascular disease, cancer at least now is confirmed by health of the cancers are, uh, have been eliminated by the calorie restriction. Uh, if you look at cardiovascular disease, about 20, 30% uh, difference. So remarkable effects. But then if you look at overall survival, it's not that much different. I mean, they live longer. The monkeys and the calorie restriction uh, regimen live longer. But then the argument is, what if you took these monkeys out of cages in a very clean and sterile environment and you took them out and exposed them, uh, you know, to the coronavirus. And, and people is, uh, may say, oh, coronavirus, this only happens uh, once in a lifetime. Well, that's all you need, right? So I always tell people, all you need is one bad event in 20, 30 years mm. to kill you 50 years before you're supposed to die. Yeah, so that's, that's uh, the, 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 of course, the concern and what we have to look at are there maybe even rare events that this extreme uh, restriction may make you sensitive to? And, um, and so, for example, anesthesia, right? Some, uh, uh, one of the things that I, that I was told that sometimes monkeys, uh, or in some cases, maybe very few, didn't wake up from anesthesia. So, um, yeah, so that, that, that could definitely be a problem to somebody that, that lives in the real world. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. 
Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. How important is, I mean, obviously there's the the actual calorie restriction component, but how important is the type of calories that they're eating and the source of those calories? Yeah, so now um, we, we published uh, uh, a number of papers on this. So very important. And, um, and already, if you look at, there were two monkey studies done, one in Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin, one by the National Institute on Aging. And the University of Wisconsin one, um, they started with a Western diet as a control diet, and then they restricted. And the National Institute on Aging instead started with a more, much healthier diet, and then they restricted. But the results were much more dramatic in the Wisconsin study, where you took sort of a relative bad diet and then you re- reduce you reduce it by 25% versus the National Institute on Aging study where they started a fairly good diet, maybe not a perfect diet, but a fairly good diet, and then they restricted. So we now know, for example, the proteins control some of the key pro-aging uh, pathways, I mean, the, the genes that, that accelerate aging. One of them is called insulin-like growth factor one, IGF-1. The other is called TOR. Uh, so... And we know, for example, the people that are calorie restricted, but they have a relatively high protein diet, IGF-1 doesn't, doesn't increase. And I organized a conference a few years ago with the experts and on genetics of aging, and the IGF-1 and TOR were considered by the, the experts as two of the, the most important pathways regulating the aging process. Yeah, so this is telling you that it's not just a restriction, mm-hmm. it's also the composition. So if you have a low calorie, high protein diet, may not be that much better than a normal calorie diet. And, and not just that, also, um, you know, it could be a low calorie diet that, that promotes insulin resistance. Uh, they may also not be uh, a, a very good diet. In terms of, of IGF-1 and TOR, those, that sort of pathway that you're mentioning there, and I guess, protein, if we start with protein specifically, is there a difference between animal and plant protein in terms of those pathways and specific amino acids? There seems to be, but there may not be necessarily, meaning that if you take enough plant proteins, the amino acid content is likely to be about the same. But if you take, if somebody, and most people do, uh, may have the protein from, let's say, a few sources, say chickpeas or, or, or you know, uh, black Lentils, beans. Black beans, yep. yeah. Yeah. Uh, so th- if you keep having the same meals, then you could, uh, let's say, methionine could be low, uh, leucine could be low, et cetera, et cetera. So then it depends what you do. But yes, plant-based, um, if you look at epidemiologically, so if you just look at large population and you say, you know, how bad the people that have lots of protein do? Usually pretty bad. But then you say, what if they, they had high, you know, high protein or moderate protein level, but it was from plant-based mostly, then they seem to do, be doing much better. But that's probably telling us that overall, people that are more vegan, they tend to do uh, better 
particularly because I always say it's almost impossible for a vegan to overeat proteins. Mm -hmm. So if you look at you know, chickpeas, for example, it would take a one pound of chickpeas to get about 45 grams of proteins. Uh, so even if you overate all day long, uh, it'd be very, very difficult to get yeah. over 60, 70 grams of protein. So my suspicion is that the epidemiological studies are pointing to the fact that the more you're vegan, the more the ingredients you consume are going to self-regulate the level of proteins. And I doubt that too many vegans are going to be, mm. I mean, unless they specifically have powders. Supplementing or, it. Yeah. The, the, the many vegans eating a natural diet will, will have too mm. much protein because it's, it's self-regulatory. And that's what's so powerful about, I think, the pescatarian diet, uh, which I think we're going to talk later, is that, let's say, having fish a couple, couple of meals a week plus the, the vegan diet seems a very good way to not having to go around with a manual uh, yeah. How much proteins uh, did yeah. I have today? Is it too much? Yeah. Quick question. This is kind of digressing a tiny bit off topic, but within the the fitness sort of, sort of culture, right? There's um, I'm not sure if you're familiar. There's some, a body of research on on um, muscle protein synthesis, which is looked at by researchers who are interested in like resistance training and how how much hypertrophy or muscle an athlete can build, right? And a lot of this science has, I mean, it's been pieced together over many decades, but the current sort of understanding is that what is most important for an athlete uh, and where I'm getting to is, is whether this is a trade-off for longevity is that the athlete would target around 1.6 grams to 2.4 grams of protein per kilogram a day and be hitting between two and three grams of leucine, which seems to be like the the amino acid that maximizes muscle protein synthesis in each meal, that two to three grams of leucine each meal. Is there a potential trade-off in doing that and having like this this postprandial period of where you, you would no doubt be activating TOR or increasing IGF one and and the longevity? Well, if you look at the studies, they suggest that um, if you have a good, good, say, leucine quality uh, proteins, and it could be vegan, and you're around 35 grams uh, or so, 30 to 35 grams of protein, that maximizes your muscle synthesis. There is not much more you can do. Mm-hmm. Now, theoretically, I think those studies refer to a single meal. So theoretically, you could do that twice a day. And then the, the most, it would be 60 grams or 70. So this idea of 1.6, it, I don't know where it comes from. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it won't make any difference. Of course, I think it makes in the, the difference in the sense that if you're loaded with proteins all the time, most likely you're not going to be deficient, right? So, so then people may get the illusion that uh, eating 1.6 gram per kilogram is promoting muscle it's like uh, this synthesis. Insurance policy. That they, yeah, exactly, insurance yeah. policy. Now there's a trick, right? And, and, and uh, which is, could be that you know insulin and IGF one look very similar, and we all know about insulin resistance. What's what's insulin resistance? Essentially, as you make too much insulin all the time because you have too much sugar in the system, eventually the cells become resistant. The muscle cells become resistant to insulin. So now there's a good chance, and uh, there is this. This is an understudied area, but certainly there's a good chance that 
this muscle cells can also become uh, resistant to IGF-1, to the growth factors, right? So if that's the case, now that 1.6 grams per kilogram will achieve exactly the opposite long-term. Eventually, your muscles stop responding to the growth signal because- You're over, overdoing it. You're pushing it all the time. So the muscle has to defend itself, obviously understanding it cannot keep growing by becoming resistant. So you need more and more. I mean, this is speculation. Yeah. So, but because of the similarities between two, these two receptors, uh, and also because of the data suggesting that if you go past that 35 grams, you're not gonna achieve any additional muscle synthesis. Uh, so I think if you take it together, I would say, uh, don't go past a gram per kilogram, even if you're trying to be uh, build muscle. Uh, now, obviously, if, uh, if it, you must do that because of professional reasons, then try to, I always tell athletes that, well, athletes definitely don't need it, but, but let's say somebody wants to build too much muscle, I would say go to the uh, lowest. The level, lower end. The lowest level that you can live with yeah. based on, on your goals. Hmm. We, we haven't really touched on autophagy. Where does that sort of come into this, this discussion so far while we're talking about calorie restriction? I mean, autophagy takes a long time in a human being to be activated. And, and so it may take four or five days of fasting before you see any activation of autophagy in a, in a systemic way. You know, we're doing lots of testing now, but, but it takes much longer than people realize. And then, um, you know, so certainly uh, we publish a number of papers on something that uh, seems to be systemic in mice and probably people, which is after, if you push your body long enough in a starvation mode, the body has to eat itself in many ways, not just autophagy. Autophagy is the way of a cell to eat uh, some of its own components, but the body overall has to eat itself. Uh, and eating itself, including eating the fat that we have stored, and this is what we've shown in the clinical trials, you first go to your visceral fat and you start taking that and then uh, you start Which is building- fat around the organs. Right, yeah. right, in the central, yeah. central uh, part of your body, your belly fat. And then um, you start slowly utilizing muscle, very slowly, right? So most of the energy comes from, from fat and glycerol, and then some of it comes from the amino acids uh, from the muscle breakdown, but not very much. Yeah, so there is a whole breakdown process. And what we've shown that is that the longer you push it, the more you break down. Uh, when you say the longer you push it, you're saying- Meaning like if you- if Going you, without food. Yeah, if you go if you go without food for let's say you know one day, uh, you just begin. Well, you're not even beginning to be, to start this process. You you do start using fatty acids and and, and producing ketone bodies. You know the famous ketogenesis uh, mode, but uh, but the real switch happens after two or three days, right? That's where uh, the body runs completely out of food and the body runs completely out of the stored sugar, essentially glycogen. And then it has to rewire everything to go into now I uh, focus on the fat as, as fuel and I start burning that. And with that also comes this shrinking essentially of the body, including muscle. So if you look at a clinical trial, muscle during the five-day uh, fasting mimicking diet uh, shrinks. But then when you refeed, it re-expands to the normal level. 
So that's just glycogen coming out and water coming out of the muscle. It's partly, partly, partly that, but it's partly also probably the, the cell itself, you know, the autophagy yeah. process, the cell itself becoming smaller. I mean, this is a, a very unexplored territory. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. we're doing lots of studies now with microscopy to try to understand what happens to the muscle cell, what happens to the liver cell, the brain cell, et cetera, et cetera. So nobody really knows what happens, right? So, but, but we suspect that, yes, Water is lost, but also cell size is lost. And some of the intracellular components are lost. And then the, the, the cells sit there and then eventually uh, re-expand once the, the um, protein and the sugars, et cetera, et cetera, are reintroduced in the diet. And so, so autophagy, just to clarify for the listeners, is the, essentially the clearing out of certain elements of the cell and then... then when you're refeeding, you're getting regeneration of new parts of the cell? Yeah, autophagy is just a part of the program, of this large program, some of which has got to do with killing cells. They say redistributing cells, killing cells, and then turning on stem cells, replacing old cells with new cells. All of this is going on, but some of it happens inside of a cell, and autophagy is that process inside of a cell, is that breakdown moment Mm. inside of a cell to basically uh, allow the cell to consume less energy and also take up, uh, utilize some of that, uh, some of its own energy or its own components as energy sources. Sure. So you're, you've described that as really happening by sort of day three, day two, three at least, right? Now, one of the more common forms of sort of quote unquote fasting that is is sort of conducted, I guess, in the mainstream probably by many people is the idea of eating within a shorter window every day, right? Is that active is that able to activate this same process that you're talking about here? Um yes and no. Meaning that of course if you if you let's say do 16 hours of uh, what's called time restricted eating uh, that has been studied a lot by uh, Sachin Panda down in San Diego. If you do 16 hours, you start seeing, for example, ketone bodies uh, going up. So the body, uh, it, it does begin to uh, break down fat and, and utilize some of it. But that's a very small effect compared to what you get after three or four days when everything comes from fat. So, of course, it takes you know, over 20, 25 hours to digest food. And the glycogen reserves can last, you know, 12, 24 hours. Uh, so, you know, up to that time, there are multiple sources of energy uh, that the body has. And so it does not need to go into a full uh, breakdown mode or it doesn't n- not need to go into a breakdown mode at all. Okay. So it doesn't want to do that uh, until, uh, you know, much past that when, when you know, by day two, two or three, the sensing is... Uh, yes, we are entering a full starvation mode, and now the autophagy, et cetera, uh, needs to occur. Now, some studies that, that I've seen uh, suggest there is very little autophagy, even at day three, in people. So that, that would be very interesting to, um, as we are doing now, to, to uh, study in more detail. So what's really happening, and when does that occur? I mean, for sure, you know, we've now done many clinical trials and four or five we already completed, by day five of the fasting mimicking diet, and we can talk about what that is, we do see a, a, the full switch into a 
starvation response mode um, that, uh, you know, may or may not happen uh, at day two or three. Yeah, I guess that that brings us to fasting mimicking diet, right? So you're, what we're talking about here or what we were talking about is complete avoidance of food and by day three, you're, you're stimulating autophagy. But there's probably a lot of listeners thinking that would be fairly hard to not eat for that long and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe part of the, the, the reason the FMD sort of program was born was to create something that mimics fasting, but is a bit easier for someone to follow? Yeah, easier, safer. Uh, we did the first, I think we started the first cancer and fasting trial at USC. That was, uh, I think, 11 years ago. And uh, we realized we didn't, we didn't think this would be a problem. We said, well, of course, a cancer patient um, will have no problem doing a water-only fast for three days. And we realized that was not so. And, and patients did not want to do water-only fasting. They felt cheated, but also it was very difficult. And the oncologist did not want their patient to uh, do a water-only fasting. And so we went to the National Cancer Institute and basically asked for funds, uh, let us develop something that, you know, of course, being uh, experts in what I call now nutri-technology. So what is the connection between each food component or a complex food environment and the genes, right? And the gene network. So being experts in that, we said, oh, of course now, we can, it's just a matter of time. We knew what protein regulated. We knew what sugars regulated. We knew what fat regulated. So how did you know that? Because I, th- I think we, well, may, we may not have gone through that, like with the yeast cell stuff that you've done. Well, we knew from yeast uh, all down to the specific amino acids that were controlling TOR and not just us, but David Sabatini and MIT and many others have been working on that. And then we knew from yeast, for example, the sugar were controlling PKA. And we knew that this is also true in mammalian cells. Uh, so that, uh, yeah, we're st- we're starting to we were starting to build this this network response uh, to different food compositions. When you say sugar, is that uh, a specific form of sugar or any sugar, any carbohydrate that's broken down into sugars? No, I mean we don't know uh, to what extent, but certainly uh, the dextrose, right? So, okay. so uh, the real sugar is having this effect, and probably a number of other. Uh, simple sugars would do the same, but not necessarily all of them. You know, fructose uh, may have a different effect. Yes. Yeah, so then, then we knew that uh, we had a pretty good idea that this was going to work, uh, just based on molecular connections that we had made. And uh, yeah, sure enough, then then we developed a, a low protein, low sugar, high fat, very healthy vegan fasting mimicking diet. And the reasoning, I think, we realized uh, last year when we published this paper on the FMD and the fact that the vegan ingredients, the sort of, the, the having picked healthy vegan ingredients was a good idea because the reasoning was instead of just saying, okay, let me make a fasting making diet, doesn't matter, it's short term, it's a cancer patient, it doesn't really matter the long-term effect. Uh, I decided it would be a better idea. Should people need to do this Many many times, be a better idea to make it very healthy based on everything we knew from longevity, different longevity area uh, around the world. So there was a, a good idea we, we found in this study because now the the vegan components were fueling the uh, microbiota, the bacteria in the gut of the mouse, at least the the protective bacteria, right? So the, yeah, yeah, yeah. whereas the water only fasting didn't do that, and even in some cases it increased the leakiness of the gut. This was a study on IBD, inflammatory bowel disease in mice. So 
the water only was at a, point, a certain point increased the leakiness of the gut. And the fasting making diet instead fueled the lactobacillus and other bacteria, mm, protective bacterial species. So they, they use these vegetables to grow and then revolutionize the composition of the microbiota. So when we started, for example, lactobacillus bifidobacteria, we were about 16%, one sixth of the microbes in the gut, and they went up to 60%, six zero after multiple cycles of the FMD. Anyway, so I thought it was a very good idea to combine healthy longevity-associated foods with the fasting uh, regimen, and, and that, uh, that seems to be um, you know, what we're going to continue to do. What are some of the sort of clinical, I guess, outcomes or biomarkers that you've measured through your various studies looking at FMD? What have you, what have you seen? Well, we, we looked at everything, and um, I think it emerges more than anything else is the return, the reset if you will, right? So the, the return, and, and the microbiotic is part of that, we think. Now, we haven't, we're still analyzing the human microbiota data from the fasting-making diet trial. But the reset, meaning like somebody had very, if you take somebody with low fasting glucose, blood sugar, right? And you put them on calorie restriction, they will continue to decrease. So they'll go lower and lower, lower. When we do the fasting-making diet, that didn't happen. So if somebody had, uh, you know, 70 fasting glucose, they didn't go down anymore. But if somebody had 105, it went back to 85. Mm. And this happened very clearly. And it just seems to happen in almost a- every case. So if you have low cholesterol, it doesn't go any, uh, down anymore. If you have high cholesterol, in most people, it went down. And same for blood pressure, same for uh, IGF-1, et cetera, et cetera. So then our conclusion is probably has to do with resetting many, many different cell types. So if, for example... If your muscle cells, as I was saying earlier, are becoming insulin resistant, there is a mechanism for that. And this mechanism probably had to do with the seasonal changes in food availability. So in the summer, you overeat, you become fat, essentially, so you can go through the winter and survive, right? So there's probably epigenetic regulation of that, meaning what does it mean? That the DNA is getting modified in a way that changes the modality to, I need to store fat now. Because it's summer, there's plenty of fruits and, and honey, and I'm gonna, I, I need to become fat because otherwise I'm dead in six months. Um, so then probably what the fasting-making diet does is unlocks that state and puts it back. So if you're locked into this fat storage mode or whatever else, insulin resistance, et cetera, it unlocks that because, of course, the message is, okay, now we have entered that uh, you know, starvation response mm. mode and we can no longer try to store fat. We need to now go in a catabolic mode, break mm-hmm. down the fat, u- utilize it, right? So that's, I think, this, uh, and this is happening probably for, for all kinds of cells uh, where they need, to, um, they need to be reprogrammed into a, a breakdown mode and post-breakdown in the refeeding, rebuilding mode. Yeah, so I guess uh, mimicking almost has a double meaning in that it's mimicking fasting, but it's also somewhat mimicking what the human species would have likely gone through in in more you know historical times our our ancestors yeah absolutely absolutely so i always say you know i'm always disturbed by silicon valley when i mean i love the idea of biohacking right but because obviously we're biohacking fmd is biohacking 
But then I always say, you have to be respectful of tradition. You have to be respectful and knowledgeable evolutionary biology. Where do we come from? You know? And where, where does that process come from? And how can we use it in a way that it doesn't hurt somebody even 30 years down the road? Because right? you could, for example, uh, intermittent fasting, the 16 hours, you know, so one, one discussion that, that Sachin Panda and I always have is, you know, what about the side effects, right? And uh, um, the gold stones. Well, the gold stones, but also people that skip breakfast, they live shorter, right? And this has been shown over and over in multiple papers. Where do you think that association's from? Well, we don't know, right? And, and, and Sachin makes a good point when he says, well, we don't know, maybe if you skip uh, dinner, it won't be a problem. Yes, possible. But when you see that those 16 hours involving this breakfast keeping make people's lives shorter mm. and not neutral, if it had a neutral effect, you could say, okay, mm. fine, you know, at least it's neutral because it's got a good and bad, like right? calorie restriction. Now it's got a negative effect. And when you see a negative effect, you have to worry about is there something very detrimental about, I mean, which clearly is not there for 12 hours. If you do 12 hours of fasting and 12 hours of feeding, which is I've what you seen, recommend, right? Which, for, what I recommend for most days. Yeah, and and but then as you go to the 16, 18 hours, you start seeing lots of problems, and that's where I think it, it is going to be. Uh, we need to, um, for example, my own fasting making diet. We say above age seventy, don't do it, and and my own fasting making diet. I say don't do it more than three times a year unless you have to do it more than three times a year. So I made sure that whatever we came up with too was regulate in a way that it would be very, very unlikely for people to get hurt by it. Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, with the time the eating and with the intermittent fasting, uh, we need to do the same and, and, and not be, uh, have wishful thinking and say, because it clearly has benefits, right? So yeah. clearly what are you, you, you're going to have lots of benefits, many of which we discussed for the FMD, right? The improvement in, in fasting glucose, et cetera, et cetera. The question is, is it then going to give you the problems that we've seen with the monkeys after 20 years? Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. That association with the skipping breakfast and longevity is interesting. Do you think, I mean, it's been kind of, and it would depend on what population is being looked at, but it, I know very much through my childhood, the the the, the messaging uh, has always been that, that breakfast is the healthiest part of the day, right? Do you think there's anything in it that people that us are skipping breakfast are potentially people that are not as health seeking in their overall lifestyle? Yeah. I mean, that's the argument, right? Uh, I think Sachin will make an argument uh, uh, around that uh, uh, line uh, and it's possible. It is possible that um, the reason for why uh, breakfast skippers live shorter and have more cardiovascular disease, et cetera, is because the same groups uh, have a, a, a poor lifestyle. But it is also possible that it's funda- some fundamental instead, um, you know, let's say, for example, burden on the heart, right? Uh, that you now continuously generate a fatty acid dependent uh, um, metabolism and the heart is being pushed to 
to maybe accumulate fat or maybe uh, utilize fat more. I mean, I don't know, uh, but but certainly you can see how this continuous uh, metabolic uh, reprogramming could have both good and bad. Sure. Coming back, I guess, into the the components of of FMD, and you've got the first two days slightly higher calories, right? First, first day. First day is slightly higher, then it drops down. I mean, it depends what you, you know, because we have FMDs that are for cancer, for autoimmune okay. diseases, for regular people. But the regular people, the uh, FMD has 1,100 calories on day one, and then it drops to about 800 on day two, three, four, five. And what you're saying is the period with a restriction in calorie is important, but what is just as important is the refeeding aspect, right? Yes, absolutely. So it, to the point that we think the same bad players like IGF-1 and TOR that are responsible for blocking this regenerative mode are the one responsible for causing the regenerative mode in the refeeding stage. So then the same players may seem appear to be very much involved in both blocking the, the ability of the body to regenerate and then uh, promoting it once you do the starvation refeeding cycle. When you, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're very familiar with the studies on centenarians and the blue zones and 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 whatnot, when you kind of look at everything that you've researched and and what other researchers have 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 unearthed in their own studies in a laboratory sort of setting, does it help explain some of the things that we do see in these populations that are living very very long lives or tending to have a, a longer average life expectancy? I think that um, in, in in my book I start with with the five pillars and and the idea was that we can no longer have this method of i think this is good so it must be good and we we need to do what we've done for example in the courtroom for for hundreds of years which is you know you have to have dna evidence you have to have the motive etc cetera, etc cetera. so you you don't convict somebody just based on oh you know the the person was in that area at the time so he or she must be guilty and so when you look at food and nutrition and all the things you do, I think the five pillars are very important. So the five pillars are, one of them is centenarians. Uh, so the, the, the centenarians are a very, very important pillar that very few people use. Why? For example, uh, if you say, I have a low-carb, animal-based, low-carb diet, and I want to keep this, this for the rest of my life. Lots of people do that now. Well, I always say I never met a centenarian that has an animal-based, uh, low-carb diet. But then another pillar, the uh, epidemiological studies, the large population. Well, if you look at the meta-analysis recently published by Lancet, but also other ones, other studies, people that have a low-carb diet, uh, they have the shorter lifespan, and uh, unless it is plant-based. In fact, in the Lancet study, uh, having 80% carbohydrate diet made you live longer than having a low-carb diet. So it's better to go almost all carbs than, than low-carb. Yeah, so then the epidemiology is another pillar. And the basic uh, studies, what about a mouse? What if I give a mouse uh, a low-carb diet? Uh, well, several studies suggest the mouse will live shorter unless it is a very special low-carb diet. Yeah, so then I think that these are all pillars that, mm. that are essential, I would say essential, to uh, make uh, the right decision and not make mistakes. And the mistakes, um, again, people focus on the next week, six months, one year, and almost nobody focuses on, you know, I want to do something right now that, yes, achieves what I'm trying to achieve, 
whether it's muscle or is uh, you know weight or or is health, but also achieves. It doesn't take away from allowing me to get to 110 healthy. Very beautifully put. So to close this one out, if we were to sort of summarize what you believe in in terms of overall top priorities for someone from a from a total lifestyle perspective. So we're very much focused in on nutrition, and of course that's a, an important pillar. What else do you place emphasis on, whether it's in your personal life or in, in, in giving others recommendations in terms of um, overall lifestyle? Well, I mean, uh, we talked about the pescatarian diet. We talked about the 12 hours restricted feeding, the fasting making diet. I always, always, we didn't talk about, you know, the eat more, not less. I think that's a mistake that lots of people, whenever I'm introduced, they, they, they introduce me saying, he's going to tell you not to eat. And I always said, no, in my book, in fact, I, I tell people to eat more. Well, it doesn't mean that. It means that in, in you know, a, 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 the dishes that I'm talking about are bigger or much bigger than the dishes that lots of people eat. So you can have, you know, let's say the typical dish of 60 grams or a couple ounces of pasta and then, you know, uh, chickpeas, but 300 grams of chickpeas and other 200 grams of vegetables. Uh, it's a huge dish. So right? the food volumes. It's a one pound of food yeah. uh, that you're now eating for dinner versus, you know, something that might be very unhealthy. Uh, let's say pasta with cheese, that might be half a pound. So, so now you eat twice as much and uh, you get less calories, but there's a, a mechanical and a nutritional regulation of hunger. Now, mechanically, your your stomach is full. The message of the brain is stop eating. But nutritionally also, you have all these uh, nutrients that are now signaling to the body, I've got enough, I don't need any more. So th- that's that's very important. And also meal frequency, we didn't talk about that. Well, we had these very bad ideas back in the last 30 years of eating five or six times a, a, a day. I don't know where it came from. The result is being cat- catastrophic. Catastrophic. Uh, why? Because people, uh, I always imagine this person that has e- eaten twice in the day and it gets to 8 p.m. and thinks, I should have eaten, my doctor told me to eat six times. So I must have another two or three meals, you know? And it sounds like a joke, but it might have happened that people now extend their, their uh, or at least in the third, last 30 years, extended their eating hours to about 15 or so hours a day. So the typical American now eats for 15 hours a day. So yeah, going back to the, the 12 is very important, but also meal uh, frequency, you know, I recommend, Eating so for somebody overweight, eat only twice a day plus a snack, and and that's it. You know, so that's also self-regulatory. We're about to start a clinical trial on that, and so we'll see what happens. But we have a, a pretty good uh, uh, idea that it would be helpful. Um, and then you know, the only other thing we didn't talk about is exercise. Um, so the studies, the, the big studies show about 150 minutes a week of uh, exercise, maybe 10 percent of it being fairly strenuous seems to be close to optimizing uh, longevity. And uh, if you go to 300 minutes, you don't really see much of a difference, uh, a small difference. So I would say multiple studies suggesting 150 minutes, almost ideal. Also, uh, we need to, again, think about the side effects, you know, what happens if you, you know, run 10 miles every day, eventually, uh, like you, if you drove your car for 200 miles a day, eventually, that car may be getting older mm. sooner. And uh, yeah, so that's... A lot of the uh, the centenarian populations don't necessarily run 10 miles a day, but they're 
they're very active at a low level. Yes, they're very active and and uh, not always. You know, we we I hated when we tried to romanticize, you know, and, and make it perfect. For example, the Italians live longer in some of the, the long-lived areas, but they're fairly frail, right? So I think that, that we need to uh, really understand the science of it and make sure that, you know, we don't try to have these simple, simplified and simplistic stories about, uh, you know, everything is perfect in Okinawa. The Okinawas are also fairly pushed to the limit. You know, the Okinawas are, are the closest in the world to color restriction. We already know the color restriction it pushes you to that edge. So, yeah, so we, we're starting to suspect that, you know, in fact, the success of some of these stories around the, some of these populations around the world is the combination of the old lifestyle and the new lifestyle. What I mean by that, for example, I, I followed Emma Morano, the third person who ever lived for, for a number of years, then she died a few years ago. She got 217. And Carlo Bava, her doctor, you know, the New York Times a few years ago interviewed me and said, oh, she eats uh, 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 red meat almost every day, ate three eggs a day. And they were trying to make it funny, right? And uh, unfortunately, what they didn't talk about is that three, the meat, 100 grams of meat every day, Carlo, her doctor, gave it to her when she turned about 100. And, and that was a very good idea because now he knew she was anemic. And he intervened and said, okay, maybe the meat is not so healthy for other reasons, but it's going to definitely uh, go after the problem that she has. So this is to say that potentially we see a lot of old Italians moving in with their uh, their sons and daughters at 80, 85. And we starting to think that this type of combination may be ideal for longevity, meaning that you live sort of calorie-restricted, vegan, pescatarian, whatever diet for the first 75, 80 years. And then you start living with your, your sons and daughters that eat much more meat, uh, much more, uh, you know, a much more uh, caloric diet, which is not necessarily good up to that age, but um, it may not be so bad yeah, so for how, uh, somebody else. How's older. that going for the kids then? And not that. good, not good at all, right? So the kids are now having all the problems, but there seems to be helping the parents, I mean, in a very reasonable, moderate way, right? So yeah. this means that, you know, Emma, uh, well, in the case of Emma, it, it was not reasonable. I mean, 100 grams of raw meat per day, right? And, and three eggs per day. So, but it worked, right? And, and, and I doubt that she would have made it to this record longevity of 117 mm. uh, if it wasn't for this sort of fairly, uh, fairly tough interventions. Now, that doesn't mean that people at 75 should eat three eggs a day and eat raw meat, but, you know, it just means that it is a sophisticated thinking process that has mm. to go in there. Definitely. And hopefully now we're training doctors to understand what do you do to somebody zero to 18, 18 to 25, 25 to say 45, 45 to 65. You know, there's probably mm. seven or eight phases, each of which is going to need something. Yeah, I quite think different. that makes sense. You know, I think we like to, we like to have a one size fits all. Yes. Yeah. I remember <laughs> a few years ago, we, we published on this paper on, on uh, uh, low protein up to age 65 being beneficial. And then after 65, a little bit higher protein level to was, prevent was better. And I remember, I think it was the Today Show and the doctor went on, uh, on the show and said, they're talking about low protein up to an age and higher protein after that. Very confusing, right? So, so uh, very entertaining to us. The, mm -hmm. the fact that, that uh, a doctor couldn't even, you know, deal with two phases of life and the protein level in these two phases. And this is the message given to people 
you know, unless it's black and white and very, very simple, uh, mm. then, uh, you know, it's too complicated. Mm. Don't worry about it. And instead, I think what we need, and my foundation is opening a clinic here in, in, in uh, Santa Monica, uh, is to have doctors that are trained and dietitians that are trained and they can work on facing the complexity and helping people with whatever need that they have, whether it's uh, somebody who's an athlete or somebody that wants to make it to 110 and uh, achieve their goals. Speaking of simple, and I know that you'll, you'll be across this uh, evidence or a science and body of literature, people no doubt want a, a simple fix to a lot of this stuff and, and probably looking for the magic supplement or magic pill. And you probably get asked all the time, is there uh, a specific drug like metformin or um, specific plant compound that can increase longevity? What are your thoughts on, on that space? There is nothing right now. Uh, this is why the FMD, you know, done maybe three times a year seems to be the best way that um, that you have based on data, I, I think. And, uh, and the other one, I think, is the 12 hours on, 12 hours off. That seems to be uh, very good uh, and uh, everybody should do it and all the other things that I'm talking about. As far as drugs are concerned, um, you know, metformin, um, there's near Barzillai and other are, are now uh, starting to assemble a big study on metformin and healthy people. Uh, but you really want to wait until that is done and it could take another 10 years. Why? Because um, if you're healthy, uh, you, your life expectancy is already very long. And if you, you're healthy and you can at least periodically or every day do some of the things that we've been discussing and periodically do some of the others, uh, you you have a good chance of making it to 85, 90. And uh, I always say you don't want to play with that chance. So whatever you add to it, you want to be pretty sure that it's going to increase and not take away from it. And right now, we just don't have enough data on, uh, on either rapamycin, metformin, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, at some point we will. And uh, when that happens, then um, if the data is strong enough, then people and doctors have to make the decision. Sure. Well, Dr. Longo, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I hope we can sit down again in the future and talk about some of the the, the science that you do between now and, and then. If anyone listening would like to, to get in touch with you or read more about your work, what's the, the best way to do so? Yeah, so we have uh, the foundation. Uh, it's called Create Cures Foundation. And uh, um, a new, uh, there's a Facebook page. I think it's Professor Walter Longo. Uh, on Facebook and uh, uh, Create Cures also has a website. So those are the, the ways, the best way uh, to get in, in touch with us. And, and the book is The Longevity Diet. Uh, everything goes to charity and to our clinics. Uh, um, so I don't make a penny out of it, but so please uh, um, keep it in mind. And, and it contains a lot of the, the things that we, uh, we discussed today. Beautiful. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, friends, there we are. Isn't he great? Dr. Volta Longo. I could listen to him speak all day long, and I really do hope I get the opportunity to have him back for round two. I'm not sure if it's his incredible knowledge or the accent, probably both. Anyhow, I'm going to put together, uh, create a short summary on fasting and longevity tips from, from this episode, from the episode with Harvard professor Dr. David Sinclair, uh, and both of their books, which I highly recommend getting. And I'll email those out. So make sure you're signed up to my newsletter at plantproof.com. And finally, I'm putting together a bunch of testimonials in my book and, and on my website, or at least 
I'm hoping to. I'm looking for 100% authentic, genuine testimonials. If you would like to send me one, perhaps you've benefited from the show, uh, from the blogs or all the content I post on social media, please email them to me at simon at plantproof.com. That's simon at plantproof.com. That would be much appreciated. And coming up on the show, I have environmental researcher Nicholas Carter back for round two. We simply couldn't cover everything in our last episode together. So please, if you haven't listened to that episode, it was only a few episodes ago, please go back and find that one with Nicholas Carter. And also, Osher Ginsberg back again, or Andrew G for all the old school Australian Idol fans out there. So stay tuned for those. As always, thanks again for hanging out with me today. And I'll catch you again back here real soon. 